I don't know if um, those of you who are regular attenders here in the auditorium and have had a chance um, to, to hear me teach um, over the years, but if you have, I wonder if you realize that one of the overarching themes that I try and instill is that it's very easy for us to get focused on the minutia of Scripture and lose sight of the big picture of what God is doing. And so one of the things that in my own spiritual walk and as I teach, one of the things that I like to do is try and pull back and get us to see the larger things that God is doing at work. So that's what I'd like to do this morning. Do you realize that over the, let's, let's go back a couple of years. Do you realize what Kevin, uh, Pastor Kevin and the executive team and our staff have been leading us into through the leading of the Holy Spirit in their leadership? A couple years ago, we did a three-year cycle. The kingdom within, God's kingdom within, God's kingdom in community, and then God's kingdom sending. Here's the thing. The paradigm that most all of us who have been raised in the church are used to is a 1,700-year-old paradigm in which the, the sending happens by the institutional church to select individuals who through either school or instruction or seminary are prepared and then sent out into other countries to share the gospel of Christ. Now, not dismissing that that's an important thing and that that has made a huge difference in our world. But the problem with that paradigm is as we talk about kingdom sending, we spent a whole year talking about kingdom sending, and we still have people that, that feel as followers of Christ that that's for somebody else. The sending is the pastor or the church staff or the missionary, not me. I mean, my job is just to come on Sunday morning. So in some ways, the kingdom sending year didn't quite communicate what I felt like Kevin and the Holy Spirit were trying to get through. So Kevin then leads us into this year in Acts. And I don't know about you, but there's a lot of people. One of the things that I heard was like, we're going to spend an entire year in the book of Acts. Are you kidding me? But what did we learn in the book of Acts? That the original paradigm after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, the original paradigm was everyday average human beings who were infused with the life of the resurrected Christ. And their lives were changed. And these individuals, male, female, young, old, uneducated, blue-collar, religious, not religious, Greek, Jewish, slaves, masters, all of them began loving others around them. And they brought the life of a resurrected Christ to a Roman empire that celebrated death 
They brought hope in a world that felt hopeless in occupation. Thousands, tens of thousands began to follow Christ. And in little home churches around the known world, they began to turn the world upside down. But that's not the paradigm we've had for 1,700 years. The paradigm we've had for 1,700 years is the institutional church determines who is acceptable, who is to be sent, who is to be approved. The original paradigm was a lot messier, but a lot more powerful. So now Kevin and the leadership team are leading us into this year in exile. And once again, just like with Acts, I've heard a whole lot of people from last fall going, exile, are you kidding me? We live in Pella, Iowa. But do you understand that for those who have received Christ, for those whose lives have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, we have a different perspective. Could I have the first slide, please? You see, exile is not just about us physically being uprooted and sent someplace that we don't want to go. Being in exile is a paradigm, a spiritual paradigm that is a part of all of us. Look at what scripture has to say. Our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, are you living as though your home is in heaven or am I living as though my home is here on earth? Therefore, we are always confident to know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. In other words, we're here on this earth, our home is with Christ in the heavenly places for we live by faith, not by sight spiritually and not materially. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and to be home with the Lord. That's exile. In this material world, in this body, I am not at home. I will be at home when I am one with Christ in the heavenly places when this earthly journey is over. So you, if you are a believer, you are in exile every day, every moment. In your home, in your community, in your job, in this church, we live in exile, spiritually. And it changes the way we see everything in life if we allow it to infuse our hearts and our minds. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, those who have died and been buried, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who has no hope. So even we, as followers of Jesus, living in exile in this world, we don't grieve like the world grieves. When we have a brother or sister in Christ who dies, it's a homecoming, man. It's a homecoming. We, 
we can celebrate because we have hope of where that person has gone. They have left exile and returned home. But in our world, how often do we get stuck in this paradigm of this is all there, this is the world and it's all about this life, it's all about this material world, it's all about the 70, 80 years that I have. You only live once, Rolo! Where's my bucket list? Get all I can! Live for this world! Get it all! Go for the gusto! He with the most toys wins! It's all about this world. Go to the next slide. See, the great story, backing up from Genesis to Revelation, the great story is really about a struggle. It's about a battle. Not a physical one, a spiritual one. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against authorities and against powers of this dark world and against spiritual forces and evil in the heavenly realms. Be alert and sober, therefore, because... Our enemy prowls like a roaring lion, seeking who he can devour. This is a spiritual struggle, and the struggle is for your heart and mind, for your spirit, for your life. Jesus came that you might have spiritual life in him. The enemy wants to keep you from that life. The enemy wants to resist all that God is in. So God, God wants to bring love. The enemy wants to resist love and bring hatred. God wants to bring life. So the enemy wants to resist life and bring death. God wants to bring grace. The enemy wants to resist and bring condemnation. And it's in your life, my friend. The resistance is real. Let me read you something. This is a list, in no particular order, of the activities that most commonly elicit resistance. Number one, the pursuit of any calling in writing, painting, music, film, dance, or any creative art, however marginal or unconventional. The launching Number two, of any entrepreneurial venture or enterprise, for profit or otherwise. Three, any diet or health regimen. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Four, any program of spiritual advancement. Five, I love this one, any activity whose aim is tighter abs. Six, any course or program designed to overcome an unwholesome habit or addiction. Seven, education of any kind. Eight, any act of political, moral, or ethical courage, including the decision to change for the better some unworthy pattern of thought or conduct in ourselves. Nine, the undertaking of any enterprise or endeavor whose aim is to help others. 10, any act that entails commitment of the heart, the decision to get married, to have a child, or to patch up a rocky relationship, to forgive. 11, 
the taking of any principled stand in the face of adversity. In other words, any act that rejects the immediate gratification in favor of long-term growth, health, or integrity. Or expressed another way, any act that derives from our higher nature, our spiritual nature, our Holy Spirit indwelled, infused nature, instead of our lower flesh. Any of these will elicit resistance. Now, as I read through that list, was there any one of those that you went, oh yeah, that's me. I mean, I know the abs one, because that's all of us. <laughs> but do you realize that you are being resisted? We're in this battle. And the game plan is really, the, the cool thing is the game plan that the enemy uses is not old. I mean, it's not new. It's the same thing. Let's go to the next slide. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Next slide. So to go to the Garden of Eden at the very beginning. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, there's the lust of the flesh, good food, appetite, pleasing to the eye, there's the lust of the eyes, oh man, does that look good. And also desirable for gaining wisdom. If I eat this thing, the snake tells me I'm going to be like God. That was it. So the snake stimulated the, the natural human appetites, and Adam and Eve ate, even when they knew they weren't supposed to. So let's go to Matthew, the fourth chapter, when Jesus comes and goes into the wilderness and is tempted by the same enemy from the Garden of Eden. Turn the stones to bread. What's that? That's the lust of the flesh. He hadn't eaten for 40 days. Do you think that he was hungry? And the enemy says, here, turn these stones to bread. You can do this, and then you can eat and be, that's the lust of the flesh. Hey, look at all the kingdoms of the world, the enemy says. I'll give them all to you. There's the lust of the eyes. Wendy and I uh, had the, the pleasure and privilege of going on a cruise a few weeks ago, and we saw a yacht that was uh, docked in uh, San Juan, Puerto Rico. This yacht is so big that it has its own page on Wikipedia. I just, I just said yacht with the name of the yacht on the back, has its own page, owned by this Russian guy. This yacht, owned by a person, has its own missile defense system. Well, there you go, and Jesus could have that. And there's, isn't there a piece of us that's like, oh, man, I wonder what it would be like to own that. Wouldn't that be kind of cool? Well, that's the lust of the eyes, man. And then he says, hey, Jesus, throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple and prove to me that you're the son of God. That's the pride of life. Prove it to me. Show me. And what did Jesus respond in each case? It is written. It is written. It is written. You see, the scripture is powerful and effective, sharper than any two-edged sword. The scripture is the key. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but on it you shall meditate day and night. And be careful to do according to all that is written in it. 
For then your way will be prosperous, and then you'll have good success. You know, it's the only place in the Bible where it talks about success. When we know the scripture so well that we meditate it on a day and night, because what happens in the resistance, when the temptation comes, what is the response? It is written. Let's go to the next slide, please. So here's the enemy's plan. Look in the middle here. Natural appetites. This is the game plan. Hunger, sex, beauty, control, security, provision, rest, pleasure, relationship. Now, this isn't a comprehensive list. This is just what I came up with off the top of my pointed head here. All right? These are all natural appetites that we have as uh, children and created in the image of God. So what happens is, in resisting us and not wanting us to be in relationship with Christ and to, to experience the life, the spiritual life that Christ has for us, the enemy wants to stimulate our appetites so that we will we'll give ourselves over to them. So all of a sudden, hunger becomes gluttony and sex becomes promiscuity. Beauty becomes chasing after all of the stuff of beauty in this world. Trying to be the most beautiful, sensual models, good-looking people that we can. Security, given over, becomes trying to make sure that we will never, ever, nothing will ever happen to us. Now, and here's the thing. It's really easy to focus in on kind of the ugly lusts. It's really easy, isn't it? When teenage girl gets pregnant, oh yeah, bad girl. It's real easy when the child comes home from a party, puking their guts out because they've been partying too much to go, oh, bad. On the other hand, we don't think too much about the fact of our hunger for acceptance means that we are so focused on how many likes we got on Instagram that I'm not listening to my creator saying, you are beautifully and wonderfully made. That we get so focused on knowledge, and you know what, that's one of the things that I've seen in history, looking back and kind of looking over the paradigm, we got so focused on knowledge that the institutional church got focused in, especially in the enlightenment, of it's all about what you believe, it's all about what you know, it's all about what you think. So get knowledge. Knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. Make sure that you know the doctrines. Make sure that you know the scriptures. Guess what? Satan even knows the scriptures. And what we did is in our pursuit of knowledge, we left behind our emotions, our relationships, our spirit. Why do you think people are leaving the, the church in droves? I think it's because for so long, it's been so much about the cerebral head knowledge and acceptance of a certain doctrine that it hasn't made any stinking difference in our day-to-day -day lives. So when we grow up and we kind of go, hey, this doesn't really matter, why would I continue to go to church? See, our lust for knowledge, and Satan goes, gotcha. 
Now, the other side of it is we can go the other direction. So all of a sudden, I don't want to give myself over to the lust of the flesh and sexual promiscuity. So let's, and this is cool, this is the Satan's plan, all right? So let's go to the other side, to legalism, and let's control it. And so through institutional power and control, through social pressure, and the threat of shame and public disgrace, condemnation, hellfire and damnation, we are going to control your behaviors. And some of us were raised in that kind of an environment. And guess what? That's not about love and grace and forgiveness. It's about control and power. The Pharisees, that's, see, that's where the Pharisees went. And what's funny is when Jesus told the Pharisees, look, in your religious legalism, you basically have continued to pursue pride and control and power and wealth and materialism. You're just doing it under the guise of religion. And it's just as wrong. So how do I, what do I do with these appetites? Because they're not wrong. They're not. These are God-given appetites. Well, that's where the fruit of the Spirit comes in. Now, let's never forget, look at the bottom there, never forget the self and self-control, because here's the thing. What the enemy is resisting in you may be different from what the enemy is resisting in me. See, that's part of the whole control thing, too. Because <laughs> we want everybody to be like me. If I'm struggling with my, this appetite, well, then everybody else better be struggling with this appetite. And we get myopically focused. And so the things that I'm trying to control in myself, we have to control in others. Now we're going over to legalism. But the self and self-control is, God, this is between you and me. Not other people. Not the church. This is between you and me. My appetites and what I am doing with them. That's self-control. When Jesus goes to Peter, when Jesus goes to Paul, he says, hey, Peter wasn't focused on what Peter had done to deny him. He was focused on, Peter, love me. Do you love me? Do you love me? Yes, to feed my sheep. And when John heard Peter say that, he goes, well, what about me? Jesus, what about me? And Jesus' response I love is like, what is it to you? I'm talking to Peter here. What is it to you? If I want him to be, you know, led to Rome and crucified upside down, then that's what's going to happen. You're a completely different story, John. Just butt out. And that's the thing that we need to recapture control with. The stuff that Jesus needs to deal with in me may not be the same stuff he needs to deal with in you or somebody else. So we need to just bring it in, let Jesus and the Holy Spirit deal with my brothers and sisters, and focus on myself. Next slide, please. So now we come to the fruit of the Spirit that we've been studying here over the last several weeks, and we're at the end of this study. We're going to uh, get into Lent and the, the 40 days leading into Holy Week and our celebration of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. 
That begins uh, on Wednesday with Ash Wednesday, and then next Sunday we begin our Lenten series. So we've just finished this whole series on the fruit of the Spirit, and we're still talking about exile. Well, what does fruit of the Spirit have to do with exile? Well, if we are in the spiritual exile, we are not home, we are waiting to go home to be one with Christ, and we are living in exile in this world, and Jesus has called us, just like the early church, to be the salt and light, to bring the kingdom of God to this earth. What does that mean? Well, it means exemplifying these fruits of the Spirit in our everyday lives, in our homes, at work, in our social activities, in our community groups, when I'm at the store or at the gas station. I am constantly to be light and salt and life and grace and mercy and forgiveness. So it says the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then it lists love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Now we get to the last one, which is self-control. Now the Greek word, en kriteia, it literally means in the Greek, en in power. So there is a, a power within that self-control means. But here's the thing. We're not talking about willpower. Because willpower is, back on that, that list, willpower is actually the lust for human control. <laughs> it is. We try and control everything ourselves. That's our will. It's actually a blending. It's the Holy Spirit. Let's look at eight, Romans 8, 9. You, who are, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. If you've crossed into the life and following Jesus and he is your Lord and Savior. You've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God lives in you. You're not living the way you used to live. And no temptation is to see, uh, overtaken you except what's common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted, whether it's to license or legalism. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. And with the temptation, he'll always give you a way out. Because this indwelling Holy Spirit wants to do this divine dance with us inside, with our appetites. Yes. Now, next slide. But it's not just the Holy Spirit. Okay, well, all right, God, just do it. Because there's also in this divine dance, if I'm not dancing with him, I'm not a very good dance partner. You know? In dancing, hey, I'm going to go back to my show choir days. All right, it's been a long time. My show choir days, when you're dancing... Somebody's leading and somebody's following. And if you try and get, get that mixed up, the dance doesn't look so good. So Holy Spirit is indwelling, and, he, and the Holy Spirit is leading, but I still have to follow, and I still have to be present and engaged in the dance. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They don't do it to get a crown that perishes, but to crown that last forever. In other words, we bring our own will to the dance. It's not an either or, it's a both and. Self-control is the ability to pursue the important rather than being impulsive and uncontrolled. 
Willpower is pride. It is the need to be in control. The fruit of the spirit of self-control isn't actually control, it's surrender. What does the 12 steps say? Yeah, you know what? I just realized that I am powerless over this appetite. My life has become unmanageable. So what do you do? I surrendered to God. And in the surrender, the Holy Spirit begins to lead me in this dance of self-control. Let's go to the next slide, please. The fruit of the Spirit is love. But here's the thing. We get so focused on self-control being about morality and purity, don't we? We get stuck on, you know, don't dance, drink, cuss, chew, or go out with girls who do. We get focused on, you know, being morally pure and making sure that our lives appear to be morally pure for others. But what it's saying there is the, the, the fruit of the Spirit is love. That is self-controlled. So what does it mean to love in a self-controlled way? That's a completely different thought, isn't it? Now all of a sudden we're not talking about moral purity for the sake of not being shamed or not going to hell. We're talking about allowing, surrendering our actions to God and behaving in a way that I can love my spouse and my children and my neighbors and my friends and the community and the lady at the gas station. So what does that look like? Here's one of the things that I've discovered. That self-controlled love responds. And the focus is really, what's, on God? what's God doing here? Remember our chain reaction of praise? All of a sudden, yeah, the fecal matter hits the electric oscillating. <laughs> and you're like, going, what? And we, we tend to react. And what would we say about the, whole, the, the chain reaction of praise? You stop and you respond with, I'm going to praise you in this moment, God. What is that? That's self-control. It's the same thing in a relationship. One of the things that Wendy and I um, discovered in one of the pieces of advice that we often give uh, parents uh, as they have young people growing into teenagers is the, the thing that we observed the most was that the best thing that we could do as parents was not to react which was hard. In fact, when Taylor and Madison were, you know, in that kind of 9, 10, 11 years old, one of the things that I told them is I sat them both down separately and I just said, here's the thing. Here's what I'm going to give you. I want to give you a gift. And here's the gift. The gift is my trust. So I am going to trust you to do the right thing. And I'm going to trust you to, to be the person that Jesus wants you to be until you prove to me that you're not trustworthy. And then we'll deal with that if it happens. But in the meantime, I'm gonna trust you. And one of the things that means is, is that my default answer is going to be yes. Now, that was really easy when they were nine, 10 years old and said, hey dad, can we go run in the sprinkler? Well, yes, go for it. It was harder when my 13 year old said, Hey, Dad, God is calling me to go to Bangkok, Thailand on a mission trip next year, the sex capital of the world. 
Because uh, the reaction was no. <laughs> and when my 16, 17-year-old said, Dad, I need to talk to you, I said, well, what's going on? So I was at this party last night, and it was like 2 o'clock in the morning. Okay, curfew was midnight. I didn't know you didn't get in until 2. And my friend so drunk. And she was puking her guts out. And she was sobbing and crying. And I was just trying to help her. And I was just kneeling there beside her, trying to take care of her. And trying to, it was just, Dad, it was just, I didn't know what to say. And I didn't know what to do. And every parental atom in my body wanted to go, what were you doing at a party last night where drinking was involved? Who were you with? Where was this party at? And I stopped and I listened and I realized in that moment as I'm struggling to control my reaction that my daughter was giving me my gift back. She was trusting me not to react. She was trusting me to hear the fact that she wasn't drinking. She was trusting me to hear the fact that she was at a party and she was trying to be Jesus to her friend. She was trying to give, allow me to trust her that even though we have some things that we need to talk about, what God is doing in this situation is helping my daughter figure out who is the person I want to be and what are the decisions that I want to make because I saw my friend puking her guts out and I don't want to be that. And when I began to realize what is God doing in this situation, it took away my need to react and control. In what ways have you reacted this week? The fruit of the Spirit, self-control, is responding, not reacting. It is eyes that are focused not on what is wrong or critical or less than, but focused on what is possible and beautiful and what God wants to do in that person. It's what he did with Paul. He didn't look at Paul, you evil murderer of my people. He said, Paul, I love you, and I can do something great with you. That's the eyes of self-control. It is ears that listen to the spirit of what God is doing, and it is tuned into what others are saying. It is a mouth that speaks grace and truth and forgiveness and encouragement, and I trust you, not you terrible, awful, ugly, person. Why would you do this? You're not amounting to anything. God is never going to use you. Self-control are hands that embrace and hold, that assist and caress and build and heal and feet that walk alongside.
And self-control is a heart of praise that in the midst of any struggle, whether it be in my lusts and my failures and my the chaos and addiction and passion, or whether it be in the legalism and my shame, my condemnation, my judgmentalism, I can with a heart of praise say, Jesus, I praise you, I praise you, I praise you. Because when we lift our eyes to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, he can begin to work with us in our own appetites and in our self-control wherever our struggle may lie. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. Last, last slide here. Reflect and respond. I got some questions for, you, for myself and for you. What natural appetites do I struggle with? Either in license... <laughs> I'm lusting for this, I'm overindulged in this, I have an addictive behavior in this area, or in legalism. I suppress it, I judge it in others, and I un have an unhealthy, repressive focus for anybody that struggles with this. What appetites and struggles am I most judgmental of in others? Ooh, that one's hard. I was thinking about that this week where I look at others and go, oh, man. Tisk, 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 tisk. What are areas where I tend to think negatively of those who obviously can't control a certain appetite? Where do I say, well, hey, I've got my struggles, but that, that's bad. When tempted, what relevant scripture from God's word have I internalized, memorized, absorbed, eaten, consumed, so that I can immediately respond, it is written? In what situations have I been negatively reactive? So my reaction has caused conflict and anger, division of relationship with my loved ones, Coworkers, strangers. What would have been the self-controlled response to that situation? And finally, surrender. In prayer to God and surrender my need to control others. Commit to God my willingness to work with the Holy Spirit to let it, him lead in this divine dance. Working together to control myself. Not just about moral purity, but love and forgiveness and grace and mercy so that each of us will be agents of light in this dark world and salt in this rotten world, of life in this dying world so that you and I will be Jesus to every person in our circles of influence. Let's pray. Jesus, I surrender to you. My, uh, my need to want to control what people hear and do with these words. I surrender to you, Lord, um, all of the appetites in my life that are out of control, both the ones that I 
give license to and the ones that I suppress in some sort of self-righteous religious purity. And I surrender to you, Lord, my judgment and condemnation of others. And I ask you, Holy Spirit, to work with me, to help me be controlled by you in responding with love and grace and mercy and forgiveness and kindness and joy and peace and patience with perseverance and faithfulness to your glory and to the praise of all you are. In Jesus' name, amen.